Today's episode is sponsored by Femex. We'll hear more about them later in the show. Hey everyone, this is your friend Bully, and you're listening to Bully Esquire. In this podcast, we chat with the movers and shakers from the worlds of finance, tech, crypto, politics, law, and media, and everything in between. Thanks for joining. Let's dive in. This podcast is powered by Blockworks, the fastest growing crypto media company. Blockworks has 20 crypto and finance podcasts, and I'm excited to be part of the network. Visit blockworks.co for access to the highest quality information in the space. I promise you won't be disappointed. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Bully Esquire. It's your host, Bully Esquire. Um, And I'm lucky enough to be joined today by Collins Belton, who's a fine corporate attorney at Brockwood Law Firm. Um, We're going to be chatting about recent legal developments in the blockchain space. Uh, Before we get into it, I'd like to remind listeners, as always, that nothing in this podcast should be viewed as any sort of legal or investment advice. We're just providing this discussion um, to, you know, give you guys a little more background and detail onto the current legal effects of the blockchain space here in the U.S. and abroad. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Collins. Collins, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thanks for being on. We appreciate it. Um, Looking forward to our discussion today. I thought, you know, before we kind of get into the recent legal developments in the blockchain space. And there's been a lot over the last couple of weeks. Um, You know, I thought maybe you could give just a little background on your education and, you know, how you got into crypto and what, what got you here. Um, I'm I'm just curious to hear, I'm always curious to hear how my guests ended up in this crazy space. Sure. Sure. No problem. Um, so yeah, you know, I started my legal career at university of Michigan in Ann Arbor, a great place to go to school. Loved it. Um, but always knew I was coming back to California and was primarily going to focus on technology companies and, you know, early stage work since that was something that was near and dear to my heart growing up. Um, so when I left law school, I joined Wilson Sonsini, which is kind of one of the world's largest firms practicing and focusing on, uh, particular technology companies, um, doing everything from, you know, helping incorporate companies, finance them, day-to-day commercial stuff, all the way to kind of the end stage of life, you know, um, exits, M&A, um, some IPO work. But I usually focused on private companies. And in particular, um, you know, really ended up focusing on blockchain companies there, um, kind of on a, less of a whim, but out of a personal interest, I was kind of the resident Bitcoin crazy associate that would just kind of run around shilling the partners and everything. And as 2017 took off, um, I was kind of one of the only associates that was kind of well known for talking about Bitcoin. So started getting pulled into more work over there. Um, and that's how I started, you know, focusing increasingly on Bitcoin. Um, and, and obviously at that time, Ethereum um, mm-hmm. companies were really starting to explode. Um, I actually ended up leaving there, not out of any, you know, disdain for big law. I know a lot of lawyers like hate, you know, big law firms and things like that. Um, my, my issue is actually not that, but really just that I think it's sometimes very hard to practice in a cutting edge area of the law mm-hmm. with a billable hour model, just because it is very difficult. And in, in effect, you're ac- asking your clients, you know, to, to pay you um, in part to be trained on the job. And so that can be very difficult. And uh, I'm, I'm sure you've probably experienced it, but trying mm-hmm. to elicit, you know, feedback or elicit, you know, responses 
to things that are you know, very complex, especially on regulatory matters, um, can get very hard. And if people don't tell you some things because they're worried about it being too expensive, uh, that can kind of lead to, to disaster. So um, I, I realized after working with a few companies there um, that I probably want to focus on them full time. But in order to do so, I didn't think the billable hour model would work. So I was actually leaving when um, a friend introduced me to uh, a guy who was starting a blockchain and fintech group at kind of a new type of law firm startup model that was called Atrium at the time. Um, so I talked with that guy um, and this guy, Ross Barbash, um, really enjoyed working with him and chatting with him. And he kind of pitched me on helping this start this group and, and really build out the practice there. So I decided to join them. That was in, I think, 2018 or something like that. Um, and really focused on building kind of the group there. That's where I'd say, you know, my real focus in, in the crypto space really took off since that gave me a lot of time to focus specifically on blockchain companies. And more importantly, Atrium's model was kind of a flat fee, um, either, you know, month over month or project based arrangement. And so because of that, I think it made it a lot easier to work in, in more detail and get more kind of technically embedded mm -hmm. with a lot of our clients um, because of that model. Um, and so I thought that worked really well, stayed there for a while. I left about a year and a half in, maybe two years, no, a year and a half in um, to start Brookwood, which is my firm. Um, and again, I actually left, ironically enough, for the same reason. Um, they were starting to change the business model some, and there was increasingly a focus less on those flat fee models and more on uh, similar types of billable hour work. Um, but at that point, I was fortunate enough to have kind of a pretty decent book of business of some you know pretty high quality crypto clients. Um, and I still did work occasionally with some of my old kind of uh, non-crypto clients in spaces that I, that are kind of important to me, gaming and privacy technology and biotech. So I started Brookwood about a year ago, actually, actually almost a year ago to the date. Um, and ever since we've been kind of doing the same thing, which is our corporate commercial and, you know, very narrowly focused regulatory work for specific blockchain companies. Gotcha. And I see you tweeting a lot about, you know, working with private equity clients and I understand, you know, you can't get into too much detail due to the attorney client privilege and confidentiality and all that. But, um, is a lot of the work you're doing in the crypto space, like helping companies and VCs, sort of raise cash or is it more broad than that? More like yeah, sort of outside general counsel stuff. Yeah, I'd say it's definitely broader. Um, oftentimes more of outside general counsel stuff. Um, but I'd say of the, like the lion's share of work is probably, I don't know, you know, 30 to 50% is probably, you know, financing. So whether that's traditional financings like VCs or some other type of alternative financing, or that's using digital assets some type of, you know, funky convertible instruments, things like that. Um, the remainder is kind of a, a mixture of your day-to-day -day outside general corporate stuff, you know, options, uh, equity, things like that. Um, some general commercial work only because um, as you'll probably have also be able to kind of verify, it's kind of difficult sometimes to explain some of the more nuanced uh, blockchain concepts to like a non-crypto commercial attorney. So mm -hmm. often I'm working alongside our commercial attorneys to you know, uh, you know kind of push forward on blockchain specific terms. Um, and then, like I said, um, there's a narrow focus for me on regulatory work for specific crypto clients. And that's primarily on you know, the securities law, uh, BSA and increasingly commodities law work. But that's just because I had a particular background, one in securities law work, obviously, but then 
personal interest um, and commodities and BSA work, um, having been both a former bank regulator, or not, I'm sorry, not regulator, uh, bank, uh, to, Jesus, what's going on in my brain, uh, AML technician. Oh, sure. So I used to work on uh, Bank Secrecy Act stuff for a credit union. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I personally was just interested in commodities work. So that all dovetailed very nicely with um, a lot of the work that like a particular sector of clients um, in DeFi do. But otherwise, I don't, you know, step outside of my bounds and you know, start opining on, you know, random treasury regulations and things like that. Yeah, no, and that's certainly one of the things that makes our job hard advising blockchain companies. And I think we'll get into this more when we get into the sort of the enforcement actions that came down this week is, you know, you're dealing with uh, multiple federal and state regulatory agencies and schemes. I mean, from, from the SEC to the IRS, to the CFTC, to the, you know, to FinCEN and all of these kind of competing agencies, all are sort of claiming jurisdiction over blockchain generally, but, you know, the devil's in the details, I suppose, you know, but have you, have you found it difficult to, you know, to juggle all of the varying regulatory frameworks that are implicated by crypto? Has that been something that your clients and you have struggled with over the years? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely challenging just because there's a lack of clarity both domestically and internationally. It's also kind of what makes it you know, fun as mm-hmm. a lawyer, as fun as it, it can be, you know, dealing with regulations as a lawyer, um, because it is kind of like, you know, either trying to kind of put a patchwork strategy together based on, you know, various, you know, jurisdictional regimes or, or that could just be regulatory regimes within a particular jurisdiction. Um, but I think the, the thing that I've found maybe more challenging is not necessarily juggling them, but fighting the kind of natural urge of a lawyer of just highlighting what the challenges are without being able to provide actionable solutions. Because unlike, you know, any of my other clients in other industries, here, you know, there are shades of gray that are just orders of magnitude, you know, more prevalent than anything else. And so it's not just like, hey, we might not know if this particular line of work might touch on, you know, skill-based, you know, gaming versus gambling. You know, a, a gaming company might say, here, you know, a crypto gaming company's got to worry about that, but also are they a money transmitter? And also if they're not, are these types of things, you know, retail commodity transactions? And it can get overwhelming if you're just kind of flagging a bunch of issues for them, but mm-hmm. not really helping them move forward. Um, and the tough part is you know, you've got to both advise them but also get them to understand that, you know, some of this advice is really probabilistic and isn't really determinative since, you know, we're, we're really interpreting guidance that doesn't have binding legislation yet. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I guess at the end of the day, it's our job to sort of tee up stuff for them and at least set the framework to the extent that it's available. And then based on the business actors risk tolerance, I suppose they have to move forward and execute their plans based on our guidance and advice. That's sort of how I, approach it typically, but you're right. It's hard from a business point of view to go to an attorney and they're like, well, here's the state of play, I think. And I don't really know what to do with that. You know, when, when you're sort of advising companies in a quasi business role, then you're like, you have to get into more of the analysis about, well, yeah, we don't know this, but here's the five things that could happen. And I think this is the most likely outcome. So, you know, here's my recommendation based on that. But back to your earlier point at a large law firm, large law firms do not like that level of uncertainty and risk with regards to their advice to clients. So it's hard to even, 
you know, have those conversations with blockchain clients at large law firms because, you know, there's, there's inevitably a level of risk there because if you're wrong or if the regulatory agency changes their point of view, you can be exposed to some extent. And, you know, I guess you did see that a little bit in the 2017 heyday of the ICOs where some firms were giving, frankly, bad legal advice or, you know, loose legal advice. And then these companies went out and raised cash and got burned as a result. But, um, you know, I guess it gets a little trickier when you're actually advising the business on how to move forward. Um, do you, do you have, like, do you have any advice as to how to balance those kind of competing interests between giving legal advice and offering advice as to how the business should move forward? Yeah, I mean, I think my my general stance here, it sounds it's kind of basic, is, you know, ra- radical candor is probably the best way to go with people. Because I think what I often see both amongst big law colleagues, you know, smaller firms, et cetera, is that there's almost uh, there's almost a guilt in some ways that, you know, some private lawyers seem to have about the state of play, especially in the States. And so it almost seems like they sometimes take it upon themselves or it's incumbent upon them to, you know, figure out a path, even if there's not a great path forward. And like you said, you know, a minute ago, I think that the real job here is not for us to make sure this strategy is bulletproof for them. I think most entrepreneurs in this space already understand that there's got, you know, some inherent risk to their business, but they need to understand, you know, what the, the real tangible risk is here. And so if you're telling them like, oh yeah, this will probably work, but you know, that probably is like a, you know, 30% chance and the 70% chance that it fails means jail. That really needs to be stressed, even if it's, you know, <laughs> right. uncomfortable and it's not going to make you their favorite person. But I also think that, um, more often than not, uh, I find that lawyers, and this was a problem I definitely used to have and I probably still have in some instances, um, tend to conflate you know, delivering bad news of being disliked by a client. And I'm sure that's possible, yeah, if you're just telling them bad news with no alternatives or you know, other approaches. But if you're going to come to somebody you know, with saying, hey, this may not be feasible for X, Y, and Z reasons, but if you're trying to achieve, you know, this type of policy or, you know, this type of, you know, business outcome, we might be able to get here, you know, instead of following, you know, steps one through four, instead of, you know, A through D, I'm, I'm pretty sure I just mixed like five different, you know, letters and numbers and things, but I, I think the, the point is made there. So ultimately, I think in terms of balancing that advice and in, in, in business practicalities, I think understanding what their business goal is, is critical because even if there is an outcome that we don't think can be achieved using a particular set of steps, if you understand intimately what the business is trying to do, then you can often come up with alternatives that do fit within, you know, a current regime. And that goes back to, you know, that point that I was making about it being difficult. I think in big law to do that sometimes just because in order to get to that level of familiarity or intimacy with the company, you just need to spend time but very few people want to pay you just to learn about their business. And, you know, half of that is like literally sitting on crypto Twitter and talking to you guys and talking to everyone else, really getting to understand like how, how is it that these systems work? Because it's not enough to just know what the client says on paper. You've got to know, like, you know, what are people communicating in these telegram groups? These are things that become evidence when, you know, court cases move forward. How are things being conveyed, you know, between a discord and telegram group is one group getting some information and the other isn't all of those things things can get, you know, relevant. Um, but once you're deeply embedded, it becomes kind of second nature to kind of understand these things. So mm-hmm. I think it's really just, you've got to 
I think this is one area of the, the law or an industry where you really should probably just care about the industry because it moves so quickly and there's so many like nuanced and like weird niche communities that to get a good handle on them, you just, you have to be involved and then you just have to make sure to keep your integrity and not kind of go, go native um, once you get too deep into things. Yeah. And I think that that that's consistent with what the regulators say, at least in my understanding where they're, you know, like I said earlier, it's a factual analysis, right? Most of the time, like you can't just use a blanket approach to any blockchain company because the tech's so new and it's moving so fast and everything's so different. So, you know, a lawyer's duty in a lot of ways is like you said, to understand the business. And then once you understand the business, you can offer advice and analysis. But before that, you know, if you don't understand the business or the technology, even worse, you know, you're going to, you're going to have a hard time giving good advice to a company on sort of these bleeding edge spaces. Um, yeah. You know, the other thing I guess I would add before we move off that is one thing I, I found is there's a sense uh, amongst people that I think if you're not like, hello, fellow kids and like deeply in, involved in what they're doing and like parroting the, the mission statement that they won't, you know, believe you or take you seriously. And, and that there may be some truth to that, but I think there is, I think there's a need sometimes for some of the lawyers to just be willing to, to engage with these platforms and understand them. Because I think I found one of the, the benefits that I've been able to maintain since leaving firms and, and continuing to get you know high quality referrals is that I think, I hope my, my rep is that, um, you know, I do understand these things. I, I use them on a day-to-day basis and, you know, I'm excited about them, but because of that, I can also be honest with people and say, look, like if, if you're going to want real advice here, the legal answer is X. Now, practically, you know, I'm not sure, you know, what level of risk you're willing to tolerate here, but there is a real world where if you go too far, you're going to be stepping onto some really thorny issues. Now, I can also say to them, now the question is, you know, if you're looking at these other platforms and how you might want to compare, you can adopt some other strategies from them. And so even if, you know, I'm delivering bad news to folks, I can often, you know, use industry level knowledge to come up with other solutions that may be compliant. And that alone, I think gets your clients to trust you, even if you're telling them ultimately, hey, this this can't work. I, I don't see a path forward here that can work in a compliant way, but maybe we can get here using some other approaches. And, and here's what I've seen, you know, you know, a year ago in some other community. What do you think about that? So that's another area where I think that intimacy with not just their company, but the industry can help kind of mitigate some of that, hey, all my lawyer says is no, but he doesn't know, you know, how to you know, propose anything else to get us to a, the next stage. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And that's, that's more of like a hybrid in-house slash outside counsel role, because I, I do think a lot of the large law firms are just like, oh, no, I mean, you can't do that. And then maybe the business just throws their hands up and does it anyway. So I, I agree in encouraging projects to seek out pragmatic legal counsel prior to taking any, you know, outside funds or something like that is, is something we should encourage as attorneys in the space. And hopefully, you know, maybe a takeaway from this podcast is if somebody's considering going out and starting a blockchain based business, well, maybe you want to talk to a lawyer before you do it. And maybe you want to talk to a lawyer with expertise and experience in the blockchain space and not your, uncle Dave who fixes traffic tickets in New Jersey. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm an, I'm a New Jersey. And so calm down there. I like <laughs> <Uncle Dave. It's... laughs> 
<laughs> nothing against the garden state, but you know, I, I'm just saying like they're the lawyers are like doctors, right? They have different specialties and maybe the, the guy who does heart surgery, you don't want operating on your foot or something. So I think the same thing applies here and it's worth reminding people about. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's something to really stress because I'd say one of the, the most annoying things I deal with on a day-to-day basis is when I inherit clients from attorneys, one like attorneys that don't do general corporate law, because that comes with its own a terrible set of issues. Um, but that's you know normal for any type of corporate company that's set up by somebody that doesn't have corporate experience. But in particular with crypto companies, there are probably two or three things that, you know, are very similar to some traditional corporate law things that once they are done, it is very difficult to undo them. And for instance, one of the big things for anyone listening to this is your jurisdictional, you know, uh, you know, state of incorporation doesn't always matter necessarily from a regulatory perspective. I think we'll talk about, you know, how BitMEX, you know, has has been brought into U S jurisdiction by, by a variety of ways, but it does matter for tax and IP purposes and far, far too often, crypto companies don't realize, and unfortunately, especially if they have some type of digital asset, like more than half of their general corporate strategy and IP and everything else may end up ultimately being dictated by tax. And so if you set up you know, a particular type of entity in the wrong place and you know for sure in the future that you're going to need to move it, that can be a very, very expensive and time-consuming affair. And so you ideally have somebody to tell you that in the beginning and you set up in a way that it's as, you know, as painless as possible to later move or to later you know, incorporate another entity if you need to or you know, set up a foundation or do whatever else. The other thing is, um, the other inflection point is probably, you know, any type of capital raise, because again, depending on what you're doing, that's going to have implications either on the status of your digital asset as security or some type of regulated commodity interest, either on your status as some type of like regulated, you know, BSA type of entity, like an exchange or an administrator. And some of those things can't be undone, or if they can be undone, they may still taint your later argument if you want to argue that you know your digital asset is isn't or is no longer a security, those types of things can just not be done after a certain point, and you can't unmake statements to the public. So I think you know formation. If you know you're going to have an asset, and you may need to you know think about tax strategy in the long term, and in particular, um, the latter point that I just discussed, I think are the the two uh, the two main points: capital raising and formation. That I'd say people should really try to talk to a lawyer to if, if nothing else in this space. For sure. Yeah. And that actually, the, this is a great segue into what I want to talk about. So I want to talk about the SALT enforcement action and the BitMEX enforcement action. And SALT dealt with raising funds and BitMEX dealt with incorporation and soliciting U.S. retail investors. So those are exactly aligned with those two points, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So on the SALT side, you know, I think we've seen a lot of these, right? A lot of the SEC has, has done enforcement actions against ICOs. And SALT was a pretty kind of classic ICO case. I think they raised something like a bit below 50 million bucks. And it was in the 2017 heyday when everyone was raising money this way. Um, and I, I just... I found a few things from the enforcement action interesting. I found a, that I think the SEC is requiring that they pay it all back um, Mm -hmm. or at least offer everyone who invested in it a chance to, you know, get their money back. 
And that seems to be different than the, you know, EOS settlement and a few others. Do you, do you get the feeling that the SEC is becoming more stern in this, or do you think it just depends on sort of how, how these are negotiated um, with the SEC and sort of the terms stemming from the, from the enforcement action? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think um, in this case, I don't know if I would take it as an indication that they're getting more stern. I think there is a general sense that they are getting a, a more standardized playbook. And in particular, um, I do think that they have shifted from, um, hey, just, you know, uh, stop doing this or, you know, you, you may have to register these or, you know, may not. And EOS, I'll talk about in a second, to um, some of these assets, you know, we still think are securities and you just need to pay them back. And I would say it's unclear to me if this is, you know, a, a stricter stance, because I do think in this case, their perspective was, Unlike, you know, arguably EOS, um, which again, I'll touch on in a second, these tokens may still just be securities. And so my sense is without making that argument, they were saying, hey, you've got to stop and register these. And, and the implicit argument there is the reason why you have to register these tokens is that they're still securities. You know, contrast that now with EOS, which was, hey, you're going to pay this fine. And we do think that your original sale of these ERC-20 EOS tokens that had, you know, no functional purpose other than trading um, were securities, but we're not requiring you to register, you know, the EOS live tokens, I think was an intimation to a lot of us that their stance is at least right now we're not taking a position that these EOS tokens are securities. And that doesn't mean that, you know, the negative is an affirmative statement from them, but it is pretty atypical because in most of these other instances where they've had enforcement action, um, or at least a, a significant number of them, there has been a requirement that, you know, the company not just conduct a rescission offer, but that they also register um, those securities. And so EOS was, was, I think, important, not just for the size of the fine, but in particular for the fact that they did not require EOS tokens to be registered. And, you know, we continue to see that these are, you know, actively being traded on U.S. You know, compliance exchanges um, that, you know, we, we know regulators are aware of. So it could also have been the case that EOS has a private action right now that's kind of pending. And so they may have wanted to see where that private case of that cause of action came out. But I'm not convinced that that was really the case. And I think in Salt's case, there was, you know, there are still some elements in any of these type of lending tokens or something where they can make better arguments that those things may still be securities because they pay out dividends or something like that than you can with a, a, a native L1 type of asset that doesn't really have any inherent properties other than being for a transaction on, you know, an L1 network. Sure. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. Collins, I appreciate that. Do you, from a practical matter, I mean, like, how do you move forward with the SEC registering the SALT tokens? Like, I suppose you'd have to just remove them all from any sort of secondary exchange and follow the sort of typical SEC registration playbook. Or, you know, my understanding is that SEC registrations are really, um, not onerous, but there's a lot to them and you have to know, you know, where they're all going, who's holding them at all times. So I just, it's hard to me in my mind to reconcile, okay, these are now registered tokens and oh, by the way, they're going to continue to operate sort of the same way they do in the crypto universe being traded on exchanges that we're not in control of and things like that. It just, once it becomes a non-custodial token, it seems hard for me in my mind to reconcile 
being registered with the SEC and being a sort of a cryptocurrency non custodial token that's traded on third party exchanges. Do you have any thoughts on how they go about doing that? I know this is all speculation, but just curious on your thoughts there. Yeah, no, happy to, to, to kind of chat on that because there's both like the technical legal means of how will they achieve this. And that I think is, you know, better understood, at least in theory. Um, and then there's the practicalities, which I think is the better thing to focus on, as, as you've highlighted. So on that first point, you know, on the technical perspective, what, you know, registration involves is filing a registration statement that includes, you know, disclosure about the nature of the company, the assets, future plans, plans for the revenue that they're using, for, that they're going to be generating, disclosures about risks of the business, disclosures about, you know, directors and the officers of the company, et cetera. Um, it, it is onerous. I don't think you're wrong to say that, um, but it's onerous by design because, again, you know, the principle that we're, you know, kind of following here is to the extent that there are, you know, individuals, intermediaries, or other types of, you know, entities that, you know, are in a position of having, you know, information or having some type of access in this company um, that would require disclosure in order for people to be able to make an informed decision, then, you know, we're going to impose those obligations on them. And similarly, if there are folks that, you know, may be in a unique position to, you know, exploit information that they have or exploit their position, we want to know about their conflicts. We want to know about risks related to them. And again, if you're depending on these people and their expertise to run the business, we want to know about that expertise and we want to know what they think is the riskiest parts of this business. Um, you know, you contrast that with, you know, some of the you know, arguments for decentralized, you know, certain types of currencies not being treated as securities. And the notion is supposed to be that at a certain point, you know, whether you want to use Bill Hinman's sufficiently decentralized kind of gloss on the last prong of Howey or some other type of, you know, pronouncement from the SEC, you know, what they're looking for in those instances are, you know, is there any identifiable group of people or, you know, uh, individual that's, you know, essential to, you know, the operation of this network moving forward? Um, and if that's not the case, it starts to make less sense for us to start imposing disclosure obligations on random people, right? Like it doesn't help to have a Bitcoin miner start disclosing, you know, their conflicts of interest if, if for no other reason than the fact that, you know, there are hundreds or thousands of other miners that are also competing against this person. And other than, you know, some very unique situations that can occur, um, that, that disclosure is just not useful for anyone in the market. It doesn't help, you know, elucidate or help them make any material, um, you know, investment decisions, kind of similar to Ethereum and other things. So um, I think, you know, when you're thinking about like SALT having to register these, I don't have enough insight as to like where they are right now. My understanding is that um, SALT is not like, a, like some of the native DeFi lending or other types of protocol tokens. And they do still have um, a roadmap ahead of them where, you know, management's still developing kind of its facilities. I understand that they've got some off-chain activity with like their loan process and things like that. So at least in that instance, it's probably a little bit harder for them to go to the SEC and say, hey, look, you know, we're not providing any essential efforts here. Um, and again, this is not, you know, saying this is the state for them. This is just, you know, my assumption if that's still the case. Um, and so for them, I don't know if they're at that point where they can make that argument. But if they do want to get there, I think they've got one of two options. Like you said, one, they do conduct this rescission offer and then, you know, they actually just continue to you know, develop privately and come back and, you know, relaunch this thing when they think it's, you know, non-security or they've got a good faith argument to the SEC. 
or they can register that. And if they do, I think you're right. Like the practical concerns are the bigger issue because you can, you can register a token. It, it'll be a lot of work. You don't have to pay lawyers a bunch of money, but they'll eventually get to a place where you can do it. I mean, we've seen that with Blockstacks and their Reggae Plus offering. Um, but like Blockstacks, it probably means that you're not going to be on a U.S. exchange for a bit of time because U.S. exchanges, in order to trade securities, need to be alternative trading systems or some other type of you know registered national exchange. Um, and so it creates this weird situation where you know, stacks held by U.S. participants technically can't be traded, whereas block stacks also trades on Binance, you know, international, um, because I, you know, I assume their position is, you know, in other jurisdictions, block stacks does not constitute a security. Sure. And so you have this weird situation where people are actively trading block stacks outside of the states and inside of the states, they can't actually trade it, which is somewhat bizarre because it basically means that the U.S., you know, primary market prime the price for block stacks and really help create a foundation of holders and, you know, a good price base. And then the international market is the one that benefits from it. So I think you're right. There's like this weird tension. And in some ways it does hurt, you know, Americans in, in a unique way, even if the company goes the regulated route and registers appropriately. And that's, you know, in some ways right now on the SEC and FINRA, because they've got to, you know, give some guidance on getting broker dealers and ATSs, that can trade these securities. Um, fortunately, it looks like they're making progress there. But to your last point, I don't think that necessarily addresses all of the issues with respect to, you know, how do we keep, you know, track of provenance of these tokens and who is currently, you know, going to be the registered holder. Um, and so in some ways right now, if, if we keep the traditional rules, I fear that we're just going to end up recreating kind of the traditional stock market with just different intermediaries. Um, but if we start loosening or changing some rules because we can rely on on-chain data in unique ways, then we might actually have a path forward for a more unique digital asset in a security space. Yeah, those are all great points. So sort of following up on that, then um, we're seeing a lot of projects launch right now in the DeFi space. <clears throat> and a lot of them are using you know Uniswap and other decentralized exchanges as a means for liquidity and, um, you know, a way for users to trade and buy and sell. So, uh, I mean, in, in your mind is, is salt much different than a project that's launching on Uniswap to raise cash for the founders to develop a project. I mean, I, to me, it looks like we're sort of redoing the ICO mania all over again, but just calling it, you know, something different with a different exchange at, at the base of it. I mean, I, and sorry to ramble on with my question, but I acknowledge that Uniswap is different than like a BitMEX or um, a Bittrex or something. But at the end of the day, it's an exchange where folks can launch centralized projects to get cash, to sell tokens, which, I mean, it just looks an awful lot like the ICO craze of 2017 and the SEC obviously made its enforcement actions based on what happened then. Do you, do you foresee a similar path happening now, or do you think this is different? Yeah, no. So I, I think you're, you're spot on. Um, and what I'll, I'll preface this by is usually I do get like, like your first announcement said, you know, this is not legal advice or financial advice. I am willing to say this just so that hopefully people will stop contacting me on this. My general stance on this, and I tell this to most clients is, 
if you are going to launch an asset for some type of project that is not fully developed and you are going to use the funds that you, you sell this asset for to finish it, you should just start with the presumption in the U.S. that you probably just have a security scheme there. Now, you may be able to rebut that presumption. That's fine. But start with that presumption. And it's, it's kind of aggravating at this point in the game when people are coming to me and they're like, oh, but what we're going to do is use this other pool. And my question is always, where does the money end up? that people, you know, deposit or pool or exchange funds for. If at the end of the day, you are withdrawing it to the company's coffers and using that money to develop your network, the SEC is not going to be fooled by you saying it's not a sale, it's something else. And Mm so I think the big thing, the first big thing I would say here is if you are going to have any type of launch, whether it's on Uniswap, whether it's a direct token sale, whether it's, you know, any of the weird types of hybrids from back in the day, if you are affirmatively selling that thing and you are using the funds to develop the project that you are pitching and marketing to people, you are going to most likely have a bias at the SEC that there is probably a securities transaction there. Now, what that does not mean, and here's where I'll, I'll probably differ from some folks, is that I don't think that all of these new DeFi fair launch projects actually are structured in that way. Um, you know, a lot of these projects are not actually raising capital. Um, some of them are not, you know, soliciting funds at all. You know, you've got your yield farming, to, you know, pool one, pool two launches. You've got, you know, airdrops for things, which, by the way, are, are not, you know, just bulletproof in and of themselves, giving out something that is a security can be an offer or sale of a security. It doesn't mean giving out something that is not a security necessarily as an investment of money, but the logic can be similar. So it's one of those things where you've got to be careful. But the, uh, one of the key differences, I think, between 2017 and 2020, which is important for the SEC and more positive for builders today, is that most of these projects are, are actually launching with a functional project. That doesn't mean they're complete. And to the extent they're not complete, some of the same concerns are going to be relevant from 2017. But there are at least some of these projects that are you know, coming out their marketing is not promising continuing development efforts. They're not actually, you know, taking any cash to finish off building the projects. There's, you know, a lot of the risks that are attendant in the ICOs. Again, you know, uh, investor capital being put at risk. Um, you know, folks that, um, let's say, you know, disclosure obligations from ongoing uh, developers are less important if we accept that this project is done being developed and, you know, it can last in perpetuity. If, you know, the developers have no administrative or smart contract key, they're in no unique position to influence the system relative to anyone else. Um, and because of those things, I think those types of launches require more scrutiny and individual analysis. But I think you're absolutely right. For the projects that are anything you're doing, balancer pools, uniswap pools, auctions, whatever it is, if at the end of the day you are taking tokens that you have created and at some point you are just extracting the value that people are using, that's that's it's a sale, whether you whatever you call it, it's still gonna be considered a sale. Um, so I think people should start with that. Um, and then they have to look at how their, you know, models differ from, you know, those traditional types of sales. If they do want to make, you know, more unique arguments about the status of their asset. I've used a lot of exchanges over the years and they all seem to have their problems from a lack of volume to bad buggy UI or the exchange crashing when Bitcoin makes a big move until now that is. Femex is a new derivatives and spot exchange launched last November by a group of former Morgan Stanley execs. Femex sports lightning fast transactions, the ability to handle many transactions at once so you don't need to worry about it crashing during big moves, deep order books and real verified volume. 
They have several different trading pairs and leverage options. They also have low trading fees and a killer ref plan. Be sure to use this URL for my welcome bonus, femex, P-H-E-M-E-X dot com slash A slash bully. Again, femex dot com slash A slash bully. Check it out. What do you, what do you think, what's your take on the NFT token stuff? You know, selling art as NFT tokens and getting into these unique individual collectibles that have been tokenized. Um, This is a very interesting development. I mean, I guess we've seen these around for years, but they've really kind of come to fruition over the last couple of months with MetaMask being so prevalent and people being on the Ethereum network. Do you, I mean, do you have kind of a knee jerk reaction to how to do the securities analysis on an NFT token, considering they're linked to a particular item or value or uh, unique good? Yeah, no, it's, it's funny. I, I don't know why, because NFTs seem to really, really set people off and they <laughs> actually seem to be, to me, they're far less problematic in terms of the thorny issues they present, at mm-hmm. least in one dimension, which is um, to the extent that an NFT is like just a digital representation of art, we actually have pretty decent you know, bodies of law and understandings of this just from the traditional art world. Um, and digital art is not like you know, a novel thing just to crypto. So it is somewhat weird to me when people are, are like, oh, how will we deal with this? And I'm like, I don't know, look at the 40 years of case law on this. This, this isn't that crazy. Um, it's really when you start getting into some of the more unique NFTs that I think um, some of the issues arise. And then also some of these NFT platforms because the NFTs themselves, you know, if it's art and someone's saying, hey, I made art and it's this particular NFT, I think it's pretty difficult for you know anyone to suddenly say, hey, this is an investment contract or something. Like you're not investing money in something. This is a pretty stereotypical you know, example of a, just a consumptive transaction. Like, hey, I want this art, I'm buying it from you, it's mine. Now we can get into some of like the contractual IP rights, like, hey, is he transferring a copyright? Is he like that's separate from the securities law question, unless you want to make some convoluted argument that this is like a derivative, like a security derivative of their copyright. But I don't think most people that are plausibly studying this space are getting into like these weird academic theoretical arguments. A lot of the times I think it's just a misguided argument that like NFTs can all be securities. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think you can structure an NFT to be a security. And where you might see that is in like some of these personal tokens that are instead promising like, Hey, I'm giving you like part of my revenue or something right. for the next few years or something. It's like that's a personal a different... dividend or something. Exactly. Because that is really just, that's just like, then the NFT is just a contract. This is a representation of a contract between you where you're basically giving a person money and they're going to take it and then, you know, potentially use it to develop a business or something and then pay you some dividends. They're just not committing to a particular type of business or something, but those can be a little different. Um, and I don't, even those, I don't think are all securities, but if you are like taking money from somebody and saying, Hey, I'm going to use your money. Um, not as like, just like maybe, I don't know, a general living stipend and I'll just one day be successful because that, you know, at least has a better argument that there really isn't like a reasonable expectation of profits. It's not reasonable to just assume a guy is going to make money just by living. But if you're telling somebody, I'm going to go out and do X, Y, and Z in three years, return you this amount of money. Well then, yeah, that's, that's just like any other securities transaction, but um, more specifically to the platforms, I think that gets trickier because they're in this weird world where 
you know, are they like an art house and you're really just like each of the artists can just post their art here and they don't take any commission and they don't, you know, do escrow or anything like that. Are they some type of intermediary? And if so, should we be looking at them as, you know, money transmitters that might, you know, be an argument, but really money transmission right now in the States applies to convertible virtual currencies. And there's a lot of arguments that NFTs are not inherently convertible virtual currencies. You can't just exchange them for cash or value. Um, now, eventually, you know, FinCEN and Treasury might start looking at the prevalence of these, you know, NFT markets and say, you know, at a certain point, there is enough of a liquid market that we do think these are convertible. But that's a pretty difficult argument to see them making because again, it would be like saying traditional art is something where you can just immediately go out and liquidate and get value. And we all know that's not the case. Like you typically are going to have to arrange an auction or have some type of agent find a particular buyer. So it's not fungible or it's not, you know, equivalent to monetary value in the same way that an ether or a Bitcoin is. So it's not even clear to me that some of these platforms have, you know, money transmitter risks. They probably do if they're, you know, escrowing funds or doing some other things, but there are also applicable exemptions. I guess at the end of the day, for me, I think the NFT craze is interesting, but I look at it more on the from the perspective of intellectual property issues and issues related to you know if if applicable BSA and things like that. The securities law questions are less relevant for some of like these newer like art NFTs and things like that. I think they are still relevant for other types of like transactional models or models where you're depending on the creator. But I, I don't know. I just found it very weird that there's been so much like vit almost vitriol by mm -hmm. both lawyers and also <laughs> people in the community. And I'm like, this, this seems very strange because it's almost like people ignore the traditional art world. And I'm like, look, guys, I'm not an art savant or anything, but I have also seen blank pieces of paper in like, you know, MoMA for that are worth $3 million. So it's kind of crazy that you guys are like, oh, this picture of Andre can't be worth 800 bucks. I'm like, all right, well, how did that white piece of paper in MoMA become worth 3 billion? Like, who knows, man? Right. Tape a banana to a wall or something. See how it goes. Yeah. That's so why I'm just like, I have no idea. I, I, I get it because like it used to set me off in the traditional art world. Like you walk into, again, you walk into a MoMA or something. I think I was in Australia once and there's like a crystallized deer. And I'm like, you guys, I don't even think you have deer here. Why, why is this, why is this art? What, what, what is this? Um, but I'm not a filthy rich artist. So who am I to speak? <laughs> right. We're just uncivilized lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Sorry for the aside. I just, I find the NFT stuff really interesting and I know it's sort of a, a, a topic. Crypto Twitter is very fascinated with right now. So I thought I'd yeah, get your no, two man, cents on it. Your world, your show. Um, so another enforcement action obviously recently was BitMEX. Um, and this sort of dovetails into the platform discussion we were having earlier. Um, and, it, you know, BitMEX, I think, had been in the regulator's target sites for a long time. My understanding that was that there were prior warnings from the CFTC and things. Um, do, you, do you get the sense that this, this order, this enforcement action will effectively kill the Bitcoin derivatives market in the U.S.? I, I know a lot of people sort of have just kind of given a wink and a nod with the VPN usage and things are, but you know, this does seem like a pretty clear cut shot across the bow from the CFTC saying we won't tolerate this. We won't tolerate us citizens being allowed to, you know, transact on your platforms. And if you continue to turn your, turn your head to us citizens using it, we're going to come down hard. Um, is that your sense on it too? 
No, so it's funny because I think everybody took that away from that, but I actually don't think that's the case. Um, I think their stance is, yeah, if you want to be a custodial exchange where you're going to be doing all of this you know, trading activity in the States, you just have to register with this. The weird thing to me, though, is that I actually am unclear as to why some of these platforms, like the centralized platforms that have been around for almost you know, seven to 10 years at this point, haven't just gone ahead and become a DCM or a swap execution facility. It's, it's time consuming, but one, it's actually arguably less burdensome than becoming like a, a securities exchange or an ATS because the CFTC allows a lot of these platforms to do things like self-certify or self um, kind of list um, assets once they have kind of, uh, I won't use legalese here, but essentially once there's a playbook that the CFTC has approved, a lot of commodities platforms can just, you know, self-certify that, you know, a new asset that they're listing adheres to a set of parameters they've previously outlined to the CFTC. And so the CFTC doesn't actively monitor each of these, you know, assets that get listed. Um, And so again, for like options that have like, you know, standard parameters and things like that, once you're approved, you can kind of go about your day-to-day business. And yeah, that means you got to have KYC and AML, but for some of these platforms, you know, if if you're already doing that, then why not? And you know, the U S derivatives market is obviously the the most massive in the world. So it's, to me, it was a little strange that they hadn't done that. I get that, you know, the, the KYC and AML stuff maybe is less popular internationally or something like that. But the gamble is exactly what you've seen here is that even if you're successful for years, if the U.S. government decides they're coming after you, a lot of that, you know, wealth is not really that enjoyable if you can't go anywhere. And like, we'll talk about McAfee in a minute, but, you know, yeah, you know, if you're a billionaire, but you can't go to Europe, America, half of Latin America, a third of Africa, and, you know, a quarter or half of Asia, well, what's like, what, why, why do you want all of that money? Um, so I think in that instance, it's less about the CFTC saying, hey, you guys can't do this here, but more if you're going to be this type of centralized company, just like any of our other exchanges doing this, then yeah, we're going to expect you to adhere to the rules. What I think is maybe more interesting is how does this impact some of these companies that are in the DeFi space that do touch on these commodities interests? Because a lot of the focus for the CFTC um, for instance, was, you know, BitMEX being a futures commissions merchant because they solicited orders for, you know, futures and the like, and also held on to the capital used for, you know, leverage or retail or financing those transactions. And so because of that, you know, that, that and is conjunctive. It's not, you know, um, an either or. And so because of that, um, a lot of these DeFi companies clearly differ, you know, at least in one in run regard, which is very important which is that they don't ever have access to these customer funds. And that's important because the CFTC highlighted in, in BitMEX how, you know, their concerns when you have these types of FCMs are things like one, they can be using, you know, the funds that people are giving to them to actively trade against them. They can also have, you know, unique information asymmetries that can be used again to either, you know, provide certain users benefits compared to others, um, which is, you know, they, you know, they, they clearly cited some potential conflicts of interest that were internal to, to BitMEX, or at least that's what they're alleging, um, and the risk of you know loss um, if that you know entity goes down or is insolvent is clear, right? Like, hey, if BitMEX disappeared, that insurance fund and everybody's funds held on the platforms just gone. Like right yeah. now, there's even concern that the multi-sig, if another one of the founders gets arrested, is also locked because it's a two of three multi-sig. So you can see why the CFTC is like, yeah, we want to know who you are and right. and what your risks are because if you disappear, you know. $10 billion goes out, out of the window with you. 
with these DeFi companies, to the extent that there aren't admin keys, there's no off-chain infrastructure and no type of, you know, unilateral ability to control the platform, those concerns are just, they're just, they're moot points. Now, there are other real concerns, you know, market manipulation, everything else, but the concerns about being an FCM tend to go away when these people just, those conflicts or, you know, their insolvency status don't matter to the safety of user funds. So I think um, it was less about saying, hey, derivative activity in the States is done. But the first big takeaway is, yeah, if you're going to make a professionalized business out of this, we're going to expect you to run it like any other business in the States. Um, And two, I think it was also particularly harsh on BitMEX just because of how much flagrant uh, mm-hmm. activity they did both publicly and particularly like thumbing their nose at regulators and rightly or wrongly, whether people agree with it. Yeah. I mean, regulators don't like getting, you know, thumbed at. We saw that with Elon Musk and the SEC last mm-hmm. year. They're seeing it here as well. I don't know what it is with crypto people that get rich and then they decide, you know what? I don't want to be rich. I'd like to fight the government. <laughs> I would just take the money, but I would just recommend if you do get rich and you're hearing this, don't decide to start fighting the government once you've made it. Do it before you've made it so that if you're going to get arrested, you at least don't have you know false hope. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you, you saw it with McAfee too, right? He was taunting the <laughs> SEC, put Jake Clayton's phone number on, on a tweet saying to call him. And <laughs> yeah, and it's one of those things I'm like, what, why? Man? Yeah. I, I kind of get it, but the thing that's weird to me as like a random aside is even if you want to like, play these status games or something, why not play them with other filthy rich people? You know, like the hedge fund guys, they fight each other. Like mm-hmm. they, they like yell at each other on Twitter. It's like, ha, ah, I've got trillions more than you do under management and you're an idiot. <laughs> For some reason, the crypto people, they dunk on like random plebs and they're like mm-hmm. follows and the regulators. And I'm like, what in God's name is wrong with you guys? How is that even fun? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to your point, if, if you have billions of dollars, like, I mean, if I had billions of dollars, I wouldn't be fighting with anyone. I'd be in the <laughs> south of France. I'd just be hanging out, tending my garden. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't be yeah, thumbing my nose <laughs> yeah. at SCC. And I give it to Justin Sun, at least for that. At least Justin Sun, you know, he goes after like, you know, Vitalik or, you know, Warren Buffett or something like that. It's like, I have no idea why some crypto people focus their ire on like their followers on Twitter other than you. Cause it's just hilarious to yeah. see, see you dump on people. <laughs> but, um, but you know, if you're, if you're rich, I'm not going to brag to the guy who's got, you know, 500 bucks that I just dumped on. I'm like, okay, cool, I guess. And the regulators just like, that's just, I don't know. It's like going back to high school and like fighting your principal 20 years later. It's like, I, I, I guess. Right. Yeah. No, Justin Sun just dunks on his own employees. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's fair. Actually. <laughs> I shouldn't, I shouldn't give him that big of a pass, but um, yeah, so so McAfee. I mean, this this is wild. This is like something out of a you know a novel or a movie or something. So he's in Belize. He gets accused of murdering his neighbor or something, yeah. and then he's on the run. <laughs> he he. Last month he tweeted that he was wearing underwear as a face mask and got in trouble. <laughs> I like how you're taking some of his. I feel like these are like the vanilla highlights. It's like, right. oh, yeah, he's got murdered. Wore panties <laughs> over his face, the face mask. It's like, yeah, I mean, well, would... I was just doing a little research before this show, and I was just laughing. <laughs> like, I mean, the guy's <laughs> such an like such a bizarre person um, that it's it's really even hard to like get any takeaways from this case because it's so unusual and bizarre, but. You know, I, for the folks who don't know, I, the gist of it was he he was running these like 
um, ICO, um, I <laughs> guess, coin of the, of the week yeah. <laughs> yes. thing where um, projects would give him millions and millions of dollars. I think the SEC said he made over $11 million on these promotions. Oh, was it 23? Yeah, 23. Oh, yeah. The 11 was just from like the Ethereum he got, but he also got (laughs) tokens and other shit. So, yeah, he made $23 million by promoting these projects. And then, um, you know, he didn't pay any taxes on it, of course. And and then he he recently got indicted by, I think it was the Southern District of New York. Yeah, SDNY. And I think um, DOJ went through SDNY for the tax matter. Um, and then they also uh, went after him for uh, securities law violations from the SEC. Um, but were there, were there like criminal fraud? Okay. Yes. Okay. So yeah. there were, so, that, well, so no, no. So I should say there was fraud alleged in the SEC complaint. And I actually expected the DOJ complaint to allege fraud, but mm-hmm. it looks like what instead the DOJ did. And I think, um, you know, I think Jake Trevinsky, Steve Pally, um, and mm-hmm. Jason Gottlieb and Rebecca Reddick had a good conversation on Twitter about this. All, all good lawyers to follow for insight here. But their mm-hmm. point was basically um, if this, you know, the tax evasion complaint is a little bit easier because one, that's how they can easily bring people in. I think everybody knows infamously that's how they got Al Capone and, and yep. other people because it's a lot more objective, right? Like it's very easy to say, look, we are saying you made this much money. We had no tax filings for this much money. There is tax evasion here. That's a crime in and of itself. Um, whereas in order to establish criminal fraud, um, you know, you've got to establish that there was intent to defraud folks. Um, and that can be a little more challenging, particularly if the, you know, the potential defendant is running all over the world and allegedly has body doubles and everything else. Um, and so I think the first point was let's on the criminal side, let's just try to bring him out on the tax thing. And then we can always gross up the complaints. And that was part of the discussion that, you know, the aforementioned lawyers were having. And I would expect that because his complaint was quite long compared to a lot of the other, like, ICO promoters and everything where like they settled or something. Um, his complaint was very long. It entailed a lot of detail about the individual ICOs, but more importantly, it did allege some pretty, like if it's true, egregious behavior that was fraudulent in terms of like telling people that they were still involved in projects while actively selling, um, you know, conflicts of interest, things like that. So it would be hard for me to see them not pursuing a complaint here, particular criminal fraud complaints if they do bring him in because they've pursued you know criminal fraud complaints the doj in crypto context that i'd argue are probably far more vanilla like it was mm-hmm. a guy saying i'm gonna build this project and he didn't and then you know you know went and bought a lambo or something that's bad and it's like pretty classic fraud but if you have somebody repeatedly telling people that they like are believing in this or they're you know very influential and they're just lying to thousands of people it seems a lot worse and so it would be hard for me to see how they justify charging some some guy like Zeslavovsky, but not McAfee. Um, and I'll say this: that even even though I think it's likely, this is a tough one for me because I yeah, the, the complaint was that it's bad, like it's not great at all. But I will also say, 2017 to 2018, John McAfee was almost an endless source of entertainment. So I would be remiss if I didn't say that it, it's kind of hypocritical for me to be like, yeah, go after him because it's like, well. To be fair, everybody found this hilarious, and I don't think anyone well, – well, I shouldn't say that because obviously somebody did take him seriously, but I don't think most people were taking him seriously that he, he really believed in all of these coins. But that is, I think, a big takeaway here is that you know, crypto Twitter makes a lot of these things like games and jokes, and I'd say like a vast, the vast majority of people are – 
pretty responsible. Like they're willing to take responsibility if they, you know, jump into some project and there's a huge rug pull and they lose all their money. But there is always a contingent of people that either really did believe the hype or just aren't willing to really be responsible for their own actions. And those people can take action and they can end up affecting you. Mm -hmm. Um, And in John McAfee's complaint, you know, there was at least one quote where somebody did say, hey, this seems like something we should reach out to the SEC on. Now, did they in and of themselves do that? I'm not sure, but clearly the SEC noticed as an example of somebody in retail really depending on his influence to help them make a decision. And so sometimes crypto Twitter folks don't take that that seriously, but jokes can, can definitely come back to bite you. And so it's just one thing to be wary of. Yeah, no, the the joke seemed funny at the time. I'm sure like uh, Arthur thought his joke about coconuts uh, was (laughs) funny, but it doesn't look great in black and white in a criminal complaint, that's for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Uh, the other, the only other thing I'd say though about McAfee's um, case is I do, I do think there are maybe one or two other things that are useful. One. All of the ICOs in that complaint, they, you know, basically allege for securities transactions. And I've actually never seen the SEC, like, hit so many projects all at once in just such a, you know, short amount of time. They kind of just went through and did a miniature Howie analysis for each, um, you know, ICO. And again, I think it just shows that there's more of a standardization to their approach now where they're just going to say, look, these things are all pre-functional. You're selling the thing. You're telling people that you're going to build it with their money. You're telling people that they're going to make money only once this thing is done. And you guys are the only ones that can complete it. Clearly, people are depending on your efforts to finish this and they've invested money. You're out of here. And so, they, you know, they bounce like eight ICOs. And in the middle of McAfee's complaint, which I think obviously you're going to say if you're saying somebody's alleging securities fraud, hey, these projects are securities. But to see them kind of like systematically run through a Howey analysis for each of those so quickly instead of like a general gloss shows to me that they are getting, you know, a more standardized approach for sales of pre-functional networks as being a pretty easy presumption for them. Mm-hmm. And then the other was um, that all of these comms, you know, Telegram, Twitter, all of this stuff really does matter. And so separate from just like the jokes, it is sometimes very difficult to get people to understand, like, unless you are sitting next to somebody and can guarantee that they're not screenshotting your telegram conversation or something else, you should just assume at all points that this something will get leaked to the New York times and just think like, Hey, if this gets leaked to the times, would I really care? Even if it's a joke, if, if you would, you probably need to like, tighten your circle of people talking and one obviously don't be committing crime or anything but um assuming you're not like a criminal or something you know you probably should keep a tighter group of people if you're gonna like make jokes or things like that but then second you should probably just not be engaging in like some of these weird conversations and such like uh and, and such public venues other than if it's like you know governance decisions or things that are intentionally meant to be you know discussed and debated publicly but if it's just like, you know, planning and things like that, where you're just riffing off of things. And sometimes you may just be kind of thinking in an ideal world situation and not like a, Hey, now you've got to grapple with the law and everything. Be careful about what you're writing because a lot of the times the record is not going to show that context. It's just going to show that, you know, you were trying to flout the law or something. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So do you think, um, do you think all of these recent enforcement, enforcement actions have a positive or negative effect on the potential for a Bitcoin ETF? I guess, particularly the BitMEX one. Yeah. I mean, I think it's funny. This is one of those rare areas. that's like very popular in crypto. And I, I, 
I won't say I find it boring, but I'm kind of like, uh, okay, guys, want an ETF. I think really it's good because it obviously professionalizes Bitcoin and makes it more likely that institutional capital can come in. But I am still in the camp that I don't know if people are, should be as thrilled as they think they are for institutional capital to come in um, because they may have some edge for a little bit of time just because of their time in, in the market. But it's, trust me, Wall Street will catch up to your financial technologies very quickly. These people invented CDSs. Um, so I don't, uh, that, that's one thing I'll get out of the way. But I will say, yeah, I think it probably does increase the likelihood of it because one of the big sticking points for the SEC is just that right now there's too much fraud. There's too much manipulation that is possible without us understanding kind of the sources and the levers for it. And there's just not enough accountability amongst some of your larger exchanges. And so because of these things, this market, if we approve it here in the States, is subject to way too many existential and external shocks than we are accustomed to permitting. Like, you know, securities and commodities markets are obviously always going to be subject to like global fluctuations and securities prices or, you know, availability of commodities and things like that. But it's not very standard to have it be that like, oh, some, you know, small exchange, let's say, you know, in the middle of, you know, Djibouti or something can suddenly cause massive ripple effects that'll like crash a market on the New York Stock Exchange. Whereas it's very possible here where it's like, oh, hey, somebody hacked, you know, some project in China that you didn't even know about, but suddenly there's $2 billion of ETH being dumped for the next like 90 days and it's starting to affect the markets and none of the centralized operators have a standardized playbook for how they address that. The SEC is like, yeah, no, that's not going to work for us. So I think it does make it more likely. At the same time, it may hurt the, U- the U.S. in the short term in terms of scaring off some folks um, from starting in the States. But um, and I, I may be preempting your next point, so sorry if I am, but, but I guess I'd say that at least my perspective there is from a long-term perspective, I don't actually think the U.S.'s competitiveness is harmed because, to be frank, I'd probably argue the U.S. is, is ultimately going to end up being one of the more permissive jurisdictions at the end of the day. And I know that sounds crazy saying it right now, but right now, my stance is if the other jurisdictions don't have looser rules necessarily. They just don't really enforce rules as much because they essentially depend on the U.S. as kind of world police here. But if you look at like what the FCA says out of the U.K., France's regulators, obviously China, Russia, um, other than like Singapore and Switzerland, which are, you know, fairly neutral, if not somewhat favorable to the technology. But even there, there's some pretty onerous requirements that go beyond the U.S., other than there, those other places, they don't have constitutional protections for things like freedom of expression um, that can protect developers that are only developing code. They don't have things like um, a principles-based um, regime where you can still make you know, plausible arguments in a court that a regulator is wrong because they're not actually adhering to their principle-based you know, uh, regime and you don't pose the same threats or risks that um, traditional entities would. You don't have as many this is a weird thing for me to say, um, but I guess like you don't have as, as vibrant of a political <laughs> discourse, which is a weird thing to say in the U.S. right now. But, you know, the conflict between politicians actually is relevant here because you have more 
you have, you have more opportunity for people to actually influence government. In some ways, it's pretty bad because you know people are lobbying and just spending a bunch of money. Um, but we see now, right? You know, there's multiple acts you know that are being sponsored by a blockchain association or something else that are trying to liberalize laws and things like that. So I think just in general, the state of the U.S. Um, does make it harder when you want to operate in like a wild west and do stuff that's pretty blatant. But because of the access to capital, because of like the professional talent that's used to like navigating regulatory waters, because of its like nexus to the rest of the world as an economic hub. And again, because of like the strong constitutional protections, I think ultimately for people that are like truly cypherpunkish, the US is probably gonna be one of the better jurisdictions to be in. Also, if you want to run like a professional business, the U.S. has like the clearest standard of rules and access to, to markets once you actually are willing to register. It's really the people that want to play like in this weird like, hey, I'm not just like a radical free speech dev, but I'm also not a business. I kind of want like the benefits of both that do find it better to play like the regulatory arbitrage game. But realistically, looking at FATF's new register, uh, sorry, the Financial Action Task Force, which is like an international body for those listening, looking at their you know upcoming regulations or recommendations, and each of the countries that are members to that organization, which is almost all countries in the world, looking at the way they plan to implement those recommendations, it's actually likely in the next you know five to six years that many other jurisdictions are far more draconian than the U.S. Um, and there are probably less protections because there aren't constitutional guarantees of protection. Sure. Yeah, no, I think I tend to agree with you that, you know, the space is growing up and we need to kind of root out the bad actors. So the bloodletting is painful, but it's ultimately good, I think, for the space and for the technology. I, I mean, I have my own opinions on the sort of U.S. regulatory environment. I think that in some respects, it's too fractured. And, um, you know, there doesn't seem to be one centralized place where folks can go to get any sort of regulatory clarity. So it makes it more difficult. But, you know, on the other hand, maybe that's a good thing, because there's all of these different agencies who are watching for bad behavior and, um, and things. So I I suppose time will tell on that. Your, Your point of view is a good one, though, that, you know, this is, the U.S. has a lot of very tangible benefits from a business point of view, and those are hard to discount. So you see Ripple being like, well, we're going to leave the U.S., but it's like, okay, well, are you going to really be better off somewhere else? Yeah, exactly. Sure. That's always my stance with people. And it's, to me, like, I, I won't go wildly political or something, but it's, it, I say that about a lot of things because people in business general are like, oh, we're going to move. I'm like, where, where are you going? Where <laughs> in the world are you going that it's actually more liberal for business right now in the u.s like i guess you go you know to some jurisdictions that just don't have general laws but that tends to harm the businesses more than it helps them and so that's why i often discount a lot of these people saying that because i'm like there are a few other jurisdictions you can go to realistically if you become a large business though they're just going to apply their regulations to you and those are about the same the other thing though is i will say And this is like a weird personal opinion that I think people that know me are sometimes surprised by because I think they think I'm like a very, like, like a big go person or something. I don't know why, but I actually do tend to feel 
generally, not just the U.S., but in particular the U.S., that some of our approaches to regulating the space are too paternalistic, and not just crypto, but just generally securities and commodities law markets. Because to be frank, as I, I've seen you joke about, but I do think there's some plausibility here, between lotteries, between just very other stupid things that people can invest in on a day-to-day basis, I don't think securities are, are like as unique as the SEC and general, even other attorneys sometimes put it, because yes, you are depending on, you know, management and things like that. But the practical reality is a lot of people do not read S1s. And I know the Mm -hmm. theory is supposed to be, oh, but we have all these other analytical firms that interpret it for the market. And that, you know, trickles down the efficient market hypothesis. But one, I think the past three years, if, if that has not called into question, you know, the efficient market hypothesis for some folks, I'm struggling. Um, I don't think that means that it's not legitimate at all, but but the strong version of that, that assumes all information is kind of integrated into the market is is clearly wrong in my perspective. And so there's gotta be, you know, some lesser level of that where the information is reflected, but that matters because if that does not necessarily hold, then the assumption that like these massive disclosure statements and everything are really informing people is a flawed one. And that doesn't mean that we should say, all right, we should get rid of it all. But if we're not going to change this to, a, to the extent that people are actually consuming this information and using it, the functional reality is, in my mind, a lot of the securities transactions are just like, they're, they're blessed to the public as being legitimate because they're registered, but it's actually worse, right? Like we just saw Nicola disappear off okay, the, yeah. this, the stock market. Like that, that's a ridiculous thing. I mean, Nicola's worth billions of dollars and it turns out like, hey, they've got videos of a truck rolling down a hill and it's just because <laughs> they pushed it. Like that, that, that's crazier than like hex or something to me. And in some ways, if people are radically clear, I would actually prefer for people to be able to get wrecked and just have to say, hey, look, this person literally told you you may lose all of your money tomorrow. And it may be because I just decided I want to walk away with your money. If they walked away with your money, there you go. That's it. Go move on. And so I, I am somewhat weirdly libertarian in that view in that I do think that if people in crypto were really to adopt the mentality that they say that they've adopted and they're all about like personal responsibility and radical transparency, then the focus should not be, do we have, you know, like uh, papers filed? It should be, Hey, have there been clear material disclosures about risks that, you know, are likely to obtain? And then if so, and that risk actually is realized and lose money from my perspective, I don't know if we need like a full agency for that. I just think it should be kind of a, as a matter of fact, no, you don't get to recover anything the exact risk they warned you about is what occurred. Yeah. Now it gets dicier when you start talking about like audit risks and smart contract risks, because then you've got to assume that people can't read smart contracts and things like that. But in general, I, I think I see what you're saying and I do agree in some ways, but if, but I, I've just accepted that we're not going to move to this world in which everyone like has this, you know, radical personal responsibility perspective. So if so, the next best thing is to be in a place where you can operate with maximum freedom when you're expressing yourself, um, not necessarily for profit, but just when you're putting ideas and creations out into the world. And after that, yeah, a strong regulatory regime for business is probably best if you're not going to have kind of like anarcho-capitalism. Awesome. Awesome, man. Well, yeah, this is uh, this has been a great conversation. Do you do you have any other like projects or things you're working on you want to let people know about, or is this you know pretty much what what what's going on? 
no, yeah, this is what's going on. I'm not really <laughs> looking for new clients or anything. I'm sure. enjoying the pace of life right now. So, um, I, yeah, I just want to, to hop on your podcast and glad to have you. Or thanks for having me, I should say. Um, this is ironically enough, my first podcast ever because I tend to just generally hate audio formats because I'm <laughs> an old man in a small person's body. But um, it, weirdly enough, I have another one after this with another close friend. So it's like the first podcast led to two in one day. No idea why. There you go. Just hammer them out quick and then it's over. <laughs> yeah, that, that's my thing too. Um, awesome. But yeah, well, anyway, always happy to come back on if you need me. So just let me know. Yeah, no, thanks for, thanks for coming on. It was really interesting to hear your point of view on this stuff. I know it's complex and it's sort of weedy or heady or whatever you want to call it, but it's, it's important stuff. So I think, uh, I think this has probably been pretty helpful to a lot of our listeners. So thanks again for coming on and you can, uh, you can find Collins on Twitter. Collins, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, Collins underscore uh, Belton. Um, And yeah, I mean, you can go ahead and join there. It's a mix of decent crypto thoughts (laughs) and then random anime and hip hop illusions. So I'm not sure if you want that in your life, but you're welcome to, to come and grab it if so. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Collins. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk soon. All right. Have a great rest of the day, Nate. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Eastern. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at BullyESQ to continue the conversation. See you next week.